Good morning. So undoubtedly, sometime in your life, um, you either have received one of these calls or you're going to receive one of these calls. Uh, it's that call that comes that says, hey, uh, you know, dad's really sick and the doctors are not optimistic. And basically, they're just trying to keep him comfortable. And he'd really love to see you. And if you want to see him, now's the time. And, and when that call comes, those of you who have experienced this know, if you haven't experienced this, take our word for it. When that call comes, you have to drop everything. And it doesn't matter whether you have other plans. It doesn't matter whether you can afford to travel or not. You find a way, you get there, because by that bedside is the only place that you want to be at a time like that. And um, it's not just you, it's other members of the family. You might have siblings and cousins and aunts and uncles coming from all different directions. And what, what you know, has this sort of bitter taste to it it turns into some sort of an impromptu family reunion as people trickle in and you see people that you don't always see and uh, everybody's gathering there. Um, it's a surreal time when that happens. Joseph got that call. And if you're, if you're just joining us in this series, you should know that we've been studying the book of Genesis for the last 263 months and that we are wrapping it up because the book of Genesis has 50 chapters and today we're in chapters 48 and 49, okay? So as we wrap this thing up, we've got this guy Joseph, the son of Jacob, and Joseph has become the prime minister of Egypt. Jacob and his sons have come to live in Egypt and God is carrying out his plan. Uh, Jacob arrived in Egypt when he was 130 years old and now he's 147 years old, and he's lying on his deathbed as we uh, open up Genesis chapter 48. So if you have a Bible, look on with me. We're in Genesis chapter 48, and uh, follow along as we read the first seven verses. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father's sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in his bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession." Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan in the journey uh, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Let's just stop there for a second. I need to tell you that this sermon is going to be awkward. And you've probably figured out at least part of that already. 
um, as soon as I open up by talking about that phone call that comes and the gathering around the deathbed, for all of us, that sort of sticks a finger in a nerve and it makes us uncomfortable. Now we're looking in on someone else's grieving time. And I can't help but think when I read this story, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here for this. Joseph is going to be meeting with his father and they're going to be exchanging these intimate um, thoughts and sharing last words with one another and saying their goodbyes. And I feel like it's inappropriate for me to be listening in. Like, this is not my business. I don't really belong here. And yet, at the same time, in God's providence, he has seen to it, not just that Joseph was there and his brothers were there and his sons were there, but he has seen to it that we get to be there. We're invited into the room. As, as Jacob's sons file into the room and gather around their father's bed, it's as though you and I are standing in the back against the wall quietly trying to stay out of the way because we know this is a sacred moment. We know that there's something big going on here, but for whatever reason, God thought it was important that we be here for this. So he records it for us so that as time goes on throughout history, all of us get to be in the room and watch what unfolds between Jacob and his sons in these last moments. And don't forget, Jacob got to plan this. You know, when there's a tragic death, when there's a sudden death, when you don't get a chance to say your goodbyes, there's often this feeling of those who are left behind, I wish we had had one more time together, I wish I had said this thing that I had never really taken the time to say, I wish I hadn't said what I did say, and, and some of those regrets. Jacob wasn't going to have that. He knew he was dying, and he wanted to make sure that he got a chance to talk to his sons and say what was on his heart. And when that happens, we need to pay attention because when you get to plan your last words, you plan carefully. When you get to think about what's the last thing they're going to hear me say, you make sure you say what you want them to hear. You don't talk about recipes or sports or the weather. You talk about what matters. And so Jacob has called his sons together for this last meeting because he wants to talk about what matters. He's going to have some famous last words. He wanted to tell his story. And the only way to tell his story was to talk about God. Look again, we're in verse 3. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples. I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Isn't it awesome, after we've watched Jacob's life unfold before our eyes, and we have seen that, you know, a huge percentage of his life, he did not walk with God. I wouldn't have even called him a believer for the vast majority of his life. He had heard about God, he had been taught by his parents about God, but he had taken his life into his own hands, gone his own way, decided he would judge God later, as though any of us ever gets to judge God. If you find yourself putting yourself in that position saying, I'll decide about God, you don't get to decide about God. God decides about you, amen? So, so he had had this attitude that he was going to be a self-made man and done life his own way. He was known for his um, deceptiveness. 
He was known for manipulation. He was known for using people to get what he wants. He had not exactly walked with God his whole life. Isn't it awesome now, at the age of 147, as we gather by his deathbed, and he says, here's my last words. I thought about this a lot. Here's what I want to say. And the first two words out of his mouth are God Almighty. I want to talk to you about God. That's what matters to me the most. I want to tell you my story. And I can't tell you my story unless I tell you God's story. Because my story is just a little piece of God's story. And it probably wasn't until he came close to the end of his life that Jacob came to understand that his story was the most valuable thing that he could leave behind for the people that he loved. Oh man, when my days on earth are over, I would love to be able to just gather my children around and announce to them that I'm going to leave them all with a huge financial windfall. Wouldn't it be awesome, those of you who are parents, gather your kids around and go, listen, I bought everybody a house, I bought everybody a car, and I put 500 grand in everybody's bank account. Goodbye. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Well, if any of my kids are listening to this, that ain't happening. So you know, right? Don't get your hopes up. Uh, you know, to give them some great experience or something, a trip around the world. Hey, the whole family's going on a cruise. Wouldn't it be great to be able to do something like that for your kids before you're gone? And, and hopefully you'll be able to do something like that. That would be awesome. But when it comes right down to it, it wouldn't have mattered how much money Jacob had to give. He knew that the thing that was most valuable that he had to give was his story about how God had changed his life. So when he gets these guys together, that's what he wants to talk about. He says, I want to point them to Jesus. And isn't that what I want to do? Isn't that what you want to do with your kids? I want to make sure, listen, like a lot of you parents, there is not a day that goes by that I do not pray specifically for every one of my kids, every one of my grandkids, and my wife. Every single day, it doesn't get skipped, it doesn't get missed. I pray for them. And I pray all kinds of things, depends what's going on in their life, depends on what their needs are, depends all of that kind of stuff. Pray specifically, but the one thing I never fail to ask God every single day of my life, I never fail to ask God, please God, draw my family closer to you. Please let them know you. Let them walk with you. Let them experience you. Let them live a life that is pleasing to you. Because when it comes right down to it, yes, I want them to be healthy. Yes, I want them to be happy. Yes, I want them to get that job or that promotion or whatever I'm praying for. But I don't want any of that as much as I want them to know Jesus. Amen? That's what I want. And Jacob had come to that point in his life too. I want him to know God Almighty, he said. And he said, God has made me blessed and fruitful. After all he had been through, The thing that Jacob wanted to get through to Joseph and his sons was that God had made him blessed and fruitful. He didn't want to sit around and talk about old memories and remember when we did this and remember that camping trip and all of that kind of stuff. That's all nice, but what he really wanted to talk about was God. And I was thinking about this from the standpoint of a pastor. One of the blessings of being a pastor is that you get invited to participate in a lot of funerals. And that doesn't sound like a blessing, but it usually is. Um, it's an awesome thing to be able to, to walk with people while they're grieving and hurting and be able to help them and guide them through that. But there's kind of two categories of people that you get asked to do a funeral for. 
there are people who you know know Jesus, and everybody at the funeral knows they know Jesus, and it's this great celebration of life and eternity and grace and all of that. And then there are people who have rejected Christ, and everybody at the funeral knows they have rejected Christ. They did not live for God, and they made their um, beliefs known. And there you are at a funeral for a person who you can't, in good conscience, stand up and say, isn't it great to know that Uncle Bob is in a better place? When you know from the scripture that Uncle Bob is not in a better place, right? And so either way, whether it's a celebration of life for somebody who's been walking with Jesus, or if it's a memorial service for a person who was not walking with Jesus, I can always say something like this every time. I usually say something like, uh, if Bob could be here today and have one last chance to talk to us, I promise you, I know what he would say. He would say, take Jesus seriously. He would say, it's really true about God. He would say, that's what life's all about. And, and because if you're standing in the presence of Jesus and you get that perspective that we only strive for, that we only hope for, that we only read about in Scripture, that eternal perspective, and you go, oh my gosh, life really was about this long, and eternity really is forever, and heaven really is awesome, and this really is what life's all about, and all the stuff that I worried about and fretted over and all of that stuff means nothing, you would want so bad to tell everybody and go, listen, just turn your eyes upon Jesus, that's what it's all about. Out, right? And by the same token, if you're facing the judgment seat of Christ, you would want to go back to the people you love and tell them, oh my gosh, don't follow my path. You need Jesus. Just like the story of Lazarus and the um, rich man. He gets, he gets cast into the grave and all he wants to do is go back to his loved ones and tell them, hey, follow God, but it's too late. Jacob had a chance before it was too late to talk to his loved ones about what mattered the most. And it apparently took Jacob a while to figure it out, but by the end of his life, he really understood it's all about God. That was his message as he wrapped up his life. And that is the message of the book of Genesis as we wrap up the book of Genesis this week and next. Now watch how this unfolds, right? Verse 5 uh, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. It's, it's a weird saying. Your two oldest sons are mine. It's a strange thing to say. Just like my two firstborn, Reuben and Simeon, are mine, your two firstborn are mine. What he's saying is this. For the purpose of the inheritance, I'm adopting your two eldest sons. Your two eldest sons are going to have a share in my inheritance, just as if they were my children. And so I'm taking responsibility for their blessing. I'm taking responsibility for their inheritance. And, and so that's uh, Manasseh, the firstborn, and Ephraim. And each of them receives an equal share along with Joseph's brothers 
of the blessings and the inheritance of Jacob. And that means in the promised land. We're talking about Abraham's promise, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now the 12 sons, right? Now, it's a little confusing. You're like, wait, I thought there was only 12 tribes of Israel. There is. The tribe of Levi became priests and they were not given any land, okay? So they're scattered among the people and they're not given any land. And then you have uh, Joseph, right? Have you ever noticed when you read a list of the 12 tribes of Israel, there's no tribe of Joseph? There's a reason. It's because there are two half-tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph, get an equal share as the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? So Joseph gets his inheritance through his sons, so to speak, which is kind of great because at this point, Joseph's way richer than his dad, right? So all this land that's coming, all this inheritance, Joseph is going to be dead very soon too. And, and this is going to go to his sons now. So that's what he's explaining. Joseph, you're the only one of my sons who's really walked with God. You're the only one of my sons who has been a blessing and, and, uh, to me. You've experienced the blessing and the promise of God. Um, you're going to experience the, um, the inheritance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you were not my firstborn, but you're going to be treated like my firstborn. You're going to get a double portion of everything through your first two sons. And I love that he adds this thing about Rachel and her death. It's as, it's as if he's saying, hey, and by the way, I loved your mom. I mean, till the day she died, I loved that woman. She was my heart. And, and to the point that I buried her, like she and I were one. I love that woman. And I was reading that. I'm like, why does he bring up Rachel and her burial and all of that when he's talking about this other stuff? It just seemed odd to me to emphasize Rachel. And I just thought, you know, how important this is? And this is a little tangent. It's not the point of the passage. It's something that jumped out to me. And, and I really want to speak, especially to those of you who have children or you're going to have children, especially if your children are still young. I, I really want you to get this. This is so important. You know what your children need from you? They need to know that dad loves mom and mom loves dad. That's what they need. I know that you think it's about soccer practice and, and college funds and, and immunizations and, and good grades and all of that stuff. All of that stuff pales in comparison to your kids being able to look at mom and dad and go, you know what? Mom and dad are madly in love. My parents love each other. When you get to see your parents and know that they love each other, as a kid, it just puts you in a place of security like no trust fund ever could. And, and so just a reminder, Joseph is an old man now, and still his father wants to make a point to talk to him about his mother and how much he loved his mother. We need to know that. Don't let it happen that as your kids age, and then they move on out of the house, and then you and your, your spouse turn and look at each other like total strangers. Because of both of your lives have been about those kids the whole time, and you forgot to love each other. Don't let it happen. Because it'll happen if you don't make sure it doesn't happen. Your, your kids need to know that mom and dad love each other. Just a little side note, take it for what it's worth. Let's go on, verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? 
Joseph said to his father, there are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. Now, just take a second. There's a dying father whose vision is so bad that he can't tell who the people in the room are. Does that bring back any memories? him, right? This is just like when Jacob stole the blessing from his brother, right? Took advantage of his father's blindness. Now he's the blind one. He, he can see, but just barely. He sees that there are, you know, I keep calling them boys. They were in their 20s by this point, Joseph's sons, grown men across the room. He says, who are these guys? He says, these are my sons, the ones you just talked about, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he says, bring them here that I could bless them. Verse 11, Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knee and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took, from them, took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right and he brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Okay, let's just stop for a second. So I want to make sure you're getting this. He brings his son. Now, this is important. In this culture, one of the reasons it's so important to make it to the deathbed is because this is where the blessings get handed out. And this determines who's the patriarch of the family moving forward. This determines the legality of all of the inheritance. You have to be there for this. And it's done in a certain way. And the way that it's done is the firstborn gets a double blessing, right? We've talked about this before. And the way that is signified is you, you lay your right hand upon him. The right hand, the hand of blessing. And so Joseph, knowing that his father doesn't see well, lines the kids up, okay? And he puts Manasseh on his left side and Ephraim on his right side so that when he brings them to his father and his father is looking at it this way, he'll put his right hand on the hand of the older. But then his dad freaks him out by crossing his hands. He's like, no, don't. I got this all set up, right? And his dad crosses his hands and he starts to bless them with his right hand on the younger one. Now, Joseph gets a little freaked out by this right? And um, so he interrupts him. Look at verse uh, 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head, right? So Joseph sees what's going on. He's like, my dad is old. He can't tell what's going on. He's half blind. He's doing this wrong. I have to fix this. So he interrupts his dad and tells him what to do. Just a word of warning. Like, as your parents get old, 
as they get like actually elderly, there comes a point where it kind of transitions where you, the child, are taking a lot more of the parental role and they're becoming more of a child's role. You have to help them make decisions, correct them, uh, redirect them, and all that kind of stuff. Do it with grace. Do it with respect and honor. Because what is it like to be 80 or 90 or 100 years old and your kid's always saying, no, dad, you're doing it wrong. No, mom, not like that, right? (laughs) And you can tell that's what's happening here because look at how Jacob responds. Verse 19, but his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know, (laughs) right? I don't have to be corrected every time, right? I know. I understand what I'm doing. And he says this, he also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brothers shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day saying, by you Israel, I will pronounce blessings saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, I just have to stop here because if you've been uh, tracking with us through the book of Genesis, I'm talking all the way from the Garden of Eden there has been this theme developing and we're seeing it again here and I don't know if you've picked up on it yet, but have you noticed that the younger one keeps being chosen over the older one? This is not, if, that is so unusual in that culture. In the ancient Near East, it was simply never done that way. The older one was always the new patriarch. The older one was always the one with the inheritance. He was always the one with the blessing. If he was a good guy, a bad guy, it didn't matter. It was a legal system. That's how it was done. So to find in the book of Genesis one occasion where it was done another way would really make that occasion stand out. If you saw it twice, you would go, wow, that's an amazing coincidence. If you saw it three times, you go, huh, this is a pattern. If you saw it four, five, six times, you would go, okay, God's trying to tell us something. Guys, think about this for a second, right? Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Abel and Cain come and they bring their offerings. Cain is the oldest, Abel is the youngest. They bring their offerings to to God. And what does it say? God had no regard for Cain or his offering but he had regard for Abel and his offering. And that set off a firestorm that ended up with Cain murdering his brother, right? God chose the younger one. And then as we move on, just think about the line of Abraham. When Abraham has a son finally in his old age, who is his firstborn? Come on, come on, come on. Who's the firstborn? Ishmael, right? Ishmael is the firstborn, but God comes to to Abraham and says, Ishmael will not be the one who gets the blessing. He will not be the one who receives the promise. He will not be the one who, who receives the inheritance, but that will come through Isaac, the younger. And then when Isaac has children, right, he has twin boys, 
uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the firstborn, but which one gets chosen? Jacob, right? Through a whole convoluted system. And then uh, out of Jacob's son, Joseph is the 11th born son. And he's the one that receives the extra blessing. And among Joseph's sons, we have uh, Manasseh, and then Ephraim is the second oldest, and Ephraim is the one that gets chosen for the blessing. Now, obviously, God's trying to tell us something, and don't forget this, the nation of Israel as a whole is always the smallest, weakest nation, right? There's Babylon and Egypt and Persia and Rome and these invading armies and all that, and there's little Israel in that part of the world, and who does God choose as his chosen nation? Israel. This is a theme. What's God trying to tell us with this theme? Why is he constantly calling those who are unqualified to receive his blessings? Why would he choose to bless someone who obviously doesn't measure up to the standard? Were all of these sons chosen because they were special? No. I'm here to tell you that they were chosen because they were not special. They were chosen because they did not measure up. They were chosen because they were not qualified. They were chosen because they were not impressive. God is trying to tell us something about himself, something about his ways, which by the way, his ways are higher than our ways as the heavens are higher than the earth, amen? So he's trying to show us something about his ways. These blessed men were not chosen because they were special. Watch this. They were special because they were chosen. When God sets his love on you, it is an act of pure grace on his part. Nobody deserves to be an, a child of God. Nobody deserves the inheritance. The scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Guys, every one of us is in the same boat. You might be a whole lot better than I am. You might do a whole lot better at following the rules. You might be a whole lot smarter. You might be a whole lot better looking. Chances are you are. But... That's not what gets you favor with God. You know what gets you favor with God? God. He decides. He decides where to give his mercy. He decides where to pour out his grace. Remember Jacob and Esau, Romans 9 talks about this, says Jacob and Esau, when they were in the womb before they had even been born, before they had ever done anything good or bad, God loved Jacob and rejected Esau. And I look at that and go, whoa, that is so not cool. That is so not fair. I do not get that. Like, like they didn't even get a chance to prove themselves. He just picked one to love and, and bless, and the other one didn't get loved and blessed. Like, what is up with that? And actually, Paul takes this on in Romans 9. I wish I had time to unpack this. But in Romans 9, Paul takes on this issue because he knows that it sets badly with all of us. None of us likes how unfair this seems. But here's what he says. He uses the example of Jacob and Esau. 
And he talks about how God will have mercy upon whom he has mercy, and he will harden the hearts of whoever he decides to harden. And again, I go, wait a second, that doesn't feel right. And Paul, anticipating my argument, says, but some of you will say, wait a minute, that's not fair. And here's my answer. This, you look it up. It's in Romans 9. Here's what he says. Here's the answer. When we get all bent out of shape about how unfair this is, here's what he says. Who are you to answer back to God, oh man? The end. He never explains himself. He never says, listen, there's something I know that you don't know. There's something about my fairness that you don't understand. Let me tell you how I go through this process of choosing. He doesn't tell us anything. You know what he says? I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. He's God. And as God, he's always right. I don't know. I don't know why this grace, I don't know why this picture of blessing that those who don't measure up so often get chosen by God, except to say, none of us measures up. And that's the point. He's trying to let us know. I don't care how far short you think you've fallen. I don't care how many times you've missed the mark. God says, it's through my love that you'll be saved, not through your efforts. God's grace is amazing. He loves you. That's what makes you blessed. He loved Joseph, so he blessed him. He loved Ephraim, so he blessed him. That's our God. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. And that's good news for people like you and me because we're not worthy. So what a moment for Joseph and his sons to have these special interactions with Jacob right before he dies. While everybody else is waiting outside, it's just the three of them in with Jacob. But eventually, everybody outside gets invited in. All the brothers line up and they're, they're ushered into the bedroom. Joseph is already in there with Ephraim and Manasseh. And, and I, it doesn't say this in the text, so this is just me. Take it for what it's worth. But I picture Joseph, after just having this great moment with his dad, this incredible blessing, right? And his brothers are being let in. I picture him just looking at his brothers, smiling and nodding and just saying to them, Without words, it's going to be good, guys. I just got blessed. You know, I know it's a hard day, but God, Dad's just about to do something great for you. So everybody, come on in, right? So they come in for their blessings. Chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, and I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now, what he's going to do is he is going to um, he is going to call them uh, by name and order of birth, and he's going to te- deal with each of them. And you can imagine how they must have been excited to finally hear what does Dad have to say to me? You know, so many people have lived their whole lives just waiting to hear something good from their dad, and and this is the moment. They're going in, and they're going to get to hear this blessing. Because remember, these boys grew up under Jacob when he was not walking with God. Like, they learned from him how to be deceptive and manipulative and cowardly and all those things that we saw in him. But since then, he's become Israel. 
Since then, he's become a man of God. And now he wants to say to them, listen, I know you guys are grown. I know I'm, I blew it during your formative years, but there's, there's some stuff I need to tell you. He says, I'm going to tell you what will befall you. And by the way, you know, Genesis is a book of firsts. We've seen the first of a lot of things in Genesis. Today, right here in Genesis chapter 49, this is the first time in recorded history that God speaks prophetically through one person to another. This is a prophecy that he's about to give. He says, this is what's going to happen in your lives, and it's a prophecy, and every word of it comes to pass as we continue to read the story of the nation of Israel. So it's not just happy wishes, this is a prophecy. So Jacob's boys gather, and he starts with Reuben, who is the firstborn, verse 3. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And Reuben steps up. And he takes a pose, sticks his chest out. (laughs) Let's just say he stuck his belly out, whatever. (laughs) At any rate, he just said preeminent power. You're the preeminent one. You're the firstborn. Let's do you first. And he steps up and he looks at his brothers like, all right, listen up, dudes. And then listen to verse 4. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Remember? You guys remember this? This goes back to Genesis 35 when, when uh, Reuben was mad and he was disrespecting his father and he wanted to get his way and he wanted to dishonor his father. And so he went and slept with his stepmother. And, and the language in Hebrew tells you that it wasn't a one-time thing. It was an affair. He slept with his stepmother in order to shame his father. And all this time, he thought his dad never knew. And he comes to get his blessing. And here's what he's told. You're out. No blessing for you. You're not preeminent. You're no longer the firstborn. Oh, that's not what I was expecting to hear. Okay, he steps back. And then he calls, remember the order, next is Simeon, then Levi, right? Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. So he calls Simeon and Levi together, which I just got to tell you, as somebody who grew up with a brother, you know you're in trouble, (laughs) right? If you just call one, it's cool. But if my dad ever shouted down the hallway, Eric and Doug, get out here, we were toast. We knew it right? We just look at each other, start crying right then. We knew it was, right? Because we got in some trouble together, right? And so he goes, Simeon and Levi, they come forward together. They just heard what happened to their older brother. So they're shaking a little bit, right? Simeon and Levi, here we go. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Remember? 
We just go back a few chapters, Genesis 34, their daughter, their sister had been defiled. They got all upset. So they used the covenant of God, the sign of God's love and grace. They used it as a weapon for murder. And they had those guys get circumcised. And when they couldn't fight, they went in and wiped out the whole city. Remember that? Their swords, their anger. And he says, basically, I'm going to have nothing to do with you because of your anger. You, you, have, you have the one guy who's sexually perverted. You have the other guy who has anger and violence issues, the other two guys, right? Just think about how different our world would be if there were no men with sexual perversion or anger and violence issues. It's a big deal. And Jacob knows it's a big deal, and he calls it a big deal. And he says, you're out. Next comes Judah. Now, if you're Judah, you know how it works in the chronology. You're trying to find the back door at this point, aren't you? <laughs> Especially because remember Judah, I think it was uh, chapter 38 of Genesis. Remember Judah slept with his own daughter-in-law and that whole sordid mess and his sons were raised up ungodly. Like Judah was a mess. In fact, I had a slide up here when we were in Genesis 38, and it said in big letters, Judah was a dirtbag. Remember that? So that's Judah, and he just saw what happened to his three older brothers, and he is sweating bullets. And his name gets called, and you just go, oh my goodness, what is he going to do to Judah? Look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Huh? Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Oh, that sounds okay. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's a sign of uh, royalty. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Now, it's, this is all very poetic, okay? This is poetry, and Hebrew poetry is very different than English poetry. It's really weird, and it's hard to decipher all of this in the Hebrew. In fact, if you're reading in a different version, I'll bet you your words are not similar in some of these verses. You're like, wow, it sounds like you're talking about a whole different thing. And the reason is because the, the Hebrew poetry is so confusing. It's all imagery and symbolism, and you're trying to figure out what he's actually saying, and it's very, very difficult, right? But here, he's using great imagery to describe Judah's wealth. You're always going to have a scepter in your hand. You're always going to rule, right? And you're, you're going to uh, be able to tie your donkey to a choice branch, okay? Picture that. A grapevine that is growing so much fruit that you could tie your donkey to one of the vines. And if you're a donkey, and you just got some of you, that's not so hard to imagine. If you're a donkey, and you got tied to a grapevine, what do you think you would do? 
you would be covered in jelly, right? By the time it's over, you would be covered in grape juice. That's what he's saying. You're going to be so rich that you're going to just let your donkeys eat off your grapevines because you'll be able to bathe in wine, he says. I don't know why you would do that, but you're gonna, you can wash your garments in wine, he says. Wow, that is not what I expected for Judah. And to be honest, I'm not too happy about it. I don't really love the fact that Judah, after being a dirtbag, gets this blessing. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm not sure that he was any better than Reuben, Simeon, or Levi. But look at this incredible blessing. And by the way, it all came true. From David all the way to Jesus, every king of Israel was from the tribe of Judah. And, and um, why would he do this? Why would he take someone who obviously doesn't deserve it and make him a king? One word, grace. It's a picture of grace. Judah, the forefather of Jesus, lives as a picture of grace. It's a picture of God's grace for us. Isn't it great to know that um, the Savior comes from a person who doesn't deserve the blessing any more than those of us deserve the blessing who received the Savior? Now, we got to go because I took way too long the last service. Here we go. Verse 13, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. And Zebulun is standing there going, um, okay. Basically, you're going to have an ocean view. Moving on, right? That's what he got. Okay, cool. Issachar is verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey. Uh-oh, here we go again. Lying down between the sheepfolds, when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. And that's exactly what happened in the land of Issachar when they went into the promised land. Basically, it was such good land that all they did was enjoy the land. They didn't build any fortresses. They didn't do any work. They just basically hung hammocks and hung out. And they got invaded and they became slaves just as it was prophesied. That's Issachar. Dan, verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. So again, a lot of poetry, a lot of imagery. What he's saying is Dan is going to be the tribe of judges and uh, righteousness and justice is going to depend upon this tribe. And so when we get to the book of Judges, you're, you're reading about people from the tribe of Dan. Okay? Verse 20, uh, Asher. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties or royal delicacies. So Asher is given the land that is basically the breadbasket of Israel fertile soil, that he grows most of the food that goes to support and feed all the people, and his food goes to the tables of kings. Verse 21, Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Okay, I'll bet you if you have a different translation, it doesn't say anything about beautiful words, and it's very straight. It's a totally different verse. Here's why nobody knows what the Hebrew means there. Like, like you, you get 10 commentators and you have 10 ideas. So they translated what they think it means. And here's what I'm going to say. I don't know what it means. Moving on. 
okay? That's it. Uh, whatever it is, it's good. It's a good life ahead. That's what he's, he's being blessed with. Verse 22, we get to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a spring, a beautiful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But the bough remained firm. His arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Uh, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head and of the one distinguished among his brothers. So he's just reiterating more poetry about how incredibly blessed Joseph is going to be. And I want you to notice in verse 25, he's no longer referring to God as his father's God. He's referring to him as his God because that's where he is now. And then uh, don't forget Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Uh-oh. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides the spoil. So it sounds bad, but it turns out good. What he's saying is that basically Benjamin is a fighter, and uh, he's going to get in scraps. And the tribe of Benjamin ends up being a warrior tribe, and they divide the spoil, meaning they win their battles and they get blessed. Okay, so those are the prophecies. And after all the prophecies, he makes arrangements to be buried with his fathers. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. Now, some of you are like, those didn't all sound like blessings. They were appropriate. Okay, they got the appropriate blessing. Verse 29, then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the, the, Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So the last thing he says is to make arrangements for his burial. And I say, why would you not just be buried in Egypt? We're going to find out in the next chapter that when they heard that he died, Egypt declared a time of mourning as a nation for 70 days they mourned for this guy. Why not just be buried there? They would have given him a pyramid. Really? He would have had a monument. He would have been buried like the great kings of Egypt. Or why not be buried in Bethlehem next to Rachel, the love of his life? He goes, no, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I don't want to be buried in Bethlehem. Where I want to be buried is in the promised land where my fathers are buried, Abraham and Isaac. I want to be buried with my fathers. Why? He was identifying himself with the faith of his fathers. He was saying, this is no longer going to be about the God of Abraham and Isaac. This is going to be about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their faith is my faith. 
I know I've wandered, I know I've struggled, I know I've stumbled along the way, but I'm 147 years old and God has given me clarity and I understand now better than I've ever understood before that nothing matters as much as God Almighty. I wanna be associated with him. I wanna be associated with the promise. I wanna be associated with my fathers. That's my faith, that's my God. And when he said all that he needed to say, he just laid back in the bed and died peacefully. And his sons would live on and face the consequences of their choices and their lives would include more challenges and more blessings and so it would be with their offspring and the generation after that and the generation after that and the generation after that and as you just turn the pages of history and you just keep turning and turning and turning, finally you come to 2019 in Southern California and we are living with the same issues that they're living with there. If you fast forward the story, you end up here with a bunch of knuckleheads who can relate to this guy's story, right? Who, who would say, you know what? I have my share of really shameful history. I have my share of times when I really didn't understand what God was doing and I tried to take matters into my own hands. I have fallen in the same pit more times than I would like to admit. I have struggled with my faith. I have doubted. I have wondered. I have tried to take matters into my own hands. And yet what I have found is there is nothing and there is no one who is more valuable and more significant in my life than God Almighty. That's the legacy. That's the story. That was his legacy. He said, I want to tell you my story. And he couldn't tell his story without telling God's story. He began with God Almighty and he ended with bury me with my fathers because that's my God. What will be said around your deathbed? What, what, what kind of stories will get swapped at your memorial service and we say, oh, remember the good old days? Will they be stories about you and your exploits and all of that kind of stuff? Or will your stories be stories about God and God's goodness and God's blessing and God's promises? I pray that when I get to the end of my life here on earth, that when they gather to talk about me, they won't be able to tell a single story without mentioning God. That's what I want to pass on to my kids. It's what I want to pass on to my grandkids. It's what I want to pass on to all of you. Wouldn't it be awesome if those who remember you are not impressed with you, or they're blown away by God? When they gather to tell your story, what will they talk about? I pray they won't be able to tell it without talking about God. Let's stand and pray together. God, we want to thank you on this day for meeting us where we are, for not insisting that somehow we meet some standard before you would reach out to us, but you have made it possible for us to know you through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's nothing but grace, God. We can't take any credit. We can't take any honor. It's just a privilege to know you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you've invited us into your story. God, help us to walk in such a way that when people see us, they'll be blinded by you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I need two more minutes, so sit down because there's a couple things I have.